This morning in our lesson, we talked about marriage, and we talked about a way that Paul teaches and describes marriage to a context of people through the lens of Jesus. Uh, marriage has existed uh, both inside and outside of Christian cultures and contexts. And people in the Roman world got married, certainly, just like people in our world do, even when they're not Christians. You know, we think of marriage as, as a Christian institution, but marriage exists outside of Christian institutions also. But when you're viewing marriage through the lens of Jesus, you're going to see it differently. And Paul describes and reshapes the way that Christians are now going to see marriage. And that's, it's, it's a fascinating, uh, chapter in Ephesians chapter 5. And he'll do a very similar thing in Colossians chapter 3. And, and you'll see, uh, marriage is going to be spoken of a number of times in the New Testament. And even in the book of Revelation, uh, there's this picture of, of a marriage of Christ, uh, the, uh, the marriage of the Lamb and the, the celebration that takes place there. Marriage is often a picture of God's relationship with his people. Uh, that is both an Old Testament idea. That's a New Testament idea. In the Old Testament, you can read uh, books like Jeremiah and see it. You can read books like uh, like Hosea. There's a vivid depiction of God as the husband and Israel as the unfaithful wife. And then when you get to the New Testament, you see the same thing about Jesus and the church. And those are not only meant for us to use marriage to see Jesus in the church differently. Those are ways of us looking at Jesus in the church to see marriage differently. And they help us interpret one another. And so there's, there's a lot of uh, power and beauty behind that. But one of the images that Paul uses is not just, say, the teaching of Jesus to talk about marriage or what Jesus says about marriage. Paul uses the actions of Jesus to teach us about marriage. Paul uses the cross, the death of Jesus, to teach us about marriage. When he's teaching about marriage, he tells husbands to be like Jesus, not just in his perfect sinlessness or in his moral teaching, but in his sacrificial death. That's the image that Paul wants to hold on to when he teaches about marriage. And that's, it's, again, it's kind of an ironic uh, way of, of teaching about marriage to look at someone who died on a cross and say, now that's the perfect picture of marriage. I don't think that many people looking at uh, crucifixion in the ancient Roman world would have those types of thoughts. Crucifixion was vile. Crucifixion was disgusting. Crucifixion was, uh, uh, was bloodlust and power driven to insanity. I mean, that's, that's what Rome used it for. Rome used it as a billboard of their own power and might and to instill fear into the eyes of anyone who walked past it. They would lay crosses on, on busy streets uh, so that people, as they traveled, would see Oh, okay, that's what happens if I, if I disobey Rome. That's what happens if I mess with Rome. That's what happens if I join an insurrection. That's, it's a way of demonstrating the might and the power of Rome. And what God did was he took the cross through Jesus and he transformed it from a billboard declaring the glory and the might and the violence and the power of Rome to the grace and the love and the goodness and the salvation of God. To where now people still see and wear crosses and we have crosses uh, as part of our culture in a lot of ways. And when people say it, they think about Christianity. They think about Jesus. They think about life after death. They think about grace and they think about love. Those are not in any way what anyone would have thought about the cross leading up to the death of Jesus. When people saw the criminals being crucified, they thought about the dominance of Rome and the weakness of those people. But Jesus changed all of that. He changed the meaning of the cross. And the cross still has like a completely different meaning today. To where you can see all kinds of things by looking at the cross. 
Paul sees marriage by looking at the cross as one of the things. He sees, now that's the picture of a husband who truly loves his wife. And what would a husband do for his wife? He would lay down his life for her. He would give up his selfishness. He would give up his, his own uh, perceptions of, of grandeur and power because he loves her and he cares for her and he's going to put her even above himself. There's an act of selfless giving love that Paul sees on the cross that affects even the way we view marriage. When you look at the New Testament, the cross is used to teach all kinds of things. Uh, And it's something that, yes, on the one hand, we are saved by it. But also the cross becomes something that we are supposed to embody and live out. And and, uh, and it becomes an example for how we are supposed to conduct ourselves among others in our relationships. So when you talk about the cross, one of the things that we often think of is the fact that we are saved because Jesus gave himself for us. And, and God covered over our sins through the cross. And, and we can have salvation and hope and forgiveness because of, of, the, of the cross. And that idea uh, is called the atonement. And there are a lot of actual uh, theories about how is it, because it's kind of a strange question, how is it that someone dying 2,000 years ago near Jerusalem can make me forgiven of sins today. Like, what is the connection between those two events? Someone died, I'm forgiven. His blood was shed, that blood is somehow given to cleanse me. Uh, And so there's different thoughts about how that takes place. Uh, One of those thoughts is, uh, the the one that's probably most common in uh, Christianity today, is uh, penal substitutionary atonement, is like the theological term for it. But basically it's the idea that you're guilty of sin, and... Um, you deserve punishment. You deserve an eternity of hell. Uh, you deserve uh, the wrath of God because of your sin. And when God was going to sentence you, an innocent person came forward and said, I'll take the punishment of their sin for them. And that was Jesus. And that's the one who committed no sin. And so God's wrath was still demonstrated against sin, but it was not demonstrated on his people. It was demonstrated on Jesus. And the demonstration of that wrath is the cross itself. And so Jesus took the wrath of God against sinners and bore it in his own body on the cross so that the wrath of God could die with him. So that God can be just because a just God must punish sin. But through his just punishment of sin, he became the one who justifies so many others. And so that's one picture. And I think if you read Romans 3, there are a number of places where you get that image of the cross being the punishment that we deserve Jesus received in himself on the cross. And by that, he was able to, uh, we, don't, we, we can walk out of the courtroom. <laughs> Even though we were guilty, we can walk out innocent because the guilt was given to somebody else. Jesus freely took it upon himself. That's one picture of atonement, of how the, the cross forgives us of our sins. Another picture uh, that uh, a lot of people will talk about, the, the fancy theological term for it, is Christus Victor. Uh, basically, it's, it's the victory of Christ over the evil powers that held us uh, under captivity to sin. And this is also a picture you get quite a bit in the New Testament, um, that through the cross, Jesus was able to overpower Satan and overcome the forces of darkness so that by destroying the captors that held us captive, we are able to be freed from them and forgiven. Um, In Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus uh, partook in flesh and blood like us so that he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. And he can free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. 
Like the cross was a demonstration of God's power over Satan. And in that way, we are freed from Satan and the effects of sin uh, that come from Satan um, in, order to, uh, in order to be forgiven. In Colossians chapter 2, you'll, you'll see that same type of image. Uh, how through the cross, uh, Jesus was able to uh, make a public spectacle of those who, uh, of the powers that be, um, and he was able to cancel out our certificate of debt. It's like our sin incurred a debt, and on the cross, Jesus wiped it out, and he disarmed the rulers and the the authorities that held that sin against us. And so those are are a couple of different pictures, and I think you can find them in the Bible. But one thing that's interesting, when you read through the Bible, and you read through a lot of the ways the cross is used, it's not... Even mostly, I don't think, used to talk about the fact that we can now go to heaven and be saved because Jesus died for us. Even though that's absolutely central and essential to our salvation, that is foundational to the cross. But most of the time that the death of Jesus is spoken about, it's spoken about as an example for how we are supposed to live and to treat others. We are supposed to carry our own crosses. We are supposed to make self-sacrificial decisions for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of other people. And all of a sudden, the cross does become the source of our salvation, absolutely. But it also becomes the model for how we are supposed to treat others. One passage that demonstrates that, like we just talked about this morning, is Ephesians chapter 5. The cross becomes the model for the way husbands treat their wives in a marriage. It's the picture of self-sacrifice. Really, I think it's the picture of love. If, you know, the word love as a concept can, can produce all kinds of thoughts in, in people's minds. Uh, in fact, if I were to say the word love today in our culture, uh, people are going to think of all kinds of things. And some of them are good things, and some of them might not even be good things. Some, some pictures of love might be immoral things, or some pictures of love might be frivolous things. But I think if you were to ask the Bible or the New Testament, what is the ultimate picture of love? If you were going to zero in so that people understand what love is, I don't know that you're going to get a concept as much as you're going to get an image of the cross. The cross is the the definition of God's love for us. The cross is where God demonstrates his love for us. If you want to see the love of God, you look to the cross of Jesus. If you want to understand the love of God, look to the all-powerful, omniscient, powerful creator of the universe becoming a man and giving his life for you on the cross. Uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like if you want to see what the love of God looks like, look to Jesus on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. Uh, in, in that passage, John three sixteen, if you want to know what God's love for the world looks like, It's the fact that he gave his own son for us. Like the death of Jesus, the giving up of Jesus' life is the picture of salvation. It's the picture of love that God wants us to have. And that becomes a picture for all kinds of things in the New Testament. Baptism. You want to talk about the way of repentance that takes place at baptism where your old self dies and you become a new person? The image that Paul often uses to talk about that is the cross itself. 
uh, that, uh, that uh, you know, Romans chapter three or chapter 6, verses uh, 3 and 4, uh, he uses uh, the fact that we died with Christ in baptism, we were buried with him, and then we were raised uh, up with him uh, in our baptism. Uh, that becomes a picture of what Jesus did on the cross through his death and burial and resurrection. Paul, when having a conversation with Peter in Galatians chapter 2 about the new way of life that we now live, says, For I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Like, he uses the cross of Jesus, crucifixion, as an example of the change that he made in his own life, of, of the transformation that took place through his own baptism when he became a Christian. And all of a sudden, the cross becomes a picture of conversion, of putting to death a former way of life and starting to live a new way of life. The, the cross is used in all kinds of ways. And uh, what I was thinking we could do in our lesson tonight is look at some of the ways that the cross is used in the New Testament to talk about the way we view and treat and become united with others. With family, uh, the cross becomes a picture of marriage. Of uh, one another as Christians, the cross becomes a picture of the love that we're supposed to have for each other. Of different groups of people who are now being united through Jesus, the cross becomes the source of that unity. And even uh, persecution, even outsiders who are hostile to us, the cross becomes the picture of how we're supposed to treat them. So if you would, uh, the first three of these are going to come from the book of Ephesians itself. So look with me at Ephesians chapter 5. We won't spend a lot of time there since that's where we were all morning. But uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul is going to discuss marriage and he's going to discuss uh, the responsibility that a husband has towards his wife, it's, it's love. And if he's going to describe love in some way, what's the best way to describe love? It's the cross. And so Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 24, uh, 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Notice that uh, in that passage, he is describing the love that husbands have for their wives, and that love is supposed to be just as Christ loved the church, and then he adds that description, and gave himself up for her. That he loved the church and gave himself up is um, the, the two ingredients. Uh, you have to love, but if the love doesn't ever cause you to give anything up for the other person, then that's not the type of love Paul, that's not the agape love that Paul is talking about. The love that he is telling husbands to have is the love of Christ that leads to the giving up of self. I think the, the reality is if you can give up yourself for another, then certainly you can give up a few of your preferences here and there. Certainly you can give up your time here and there. Certainly you can give up uh, uh, some of the things that may be causing tension in your relationship or in your marriage. It's a life of, of sacrifice that you're making for someone else. And if Paul is going to talk about marriage and love, Jesus giving himself for, up for us becomes his model for doing that. If he's going to talk about the way that Christians now live and treat and walk with one another, he's going to use the word love to do that same thing. If you look at uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, backing up a little bit, um, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, notice how Paul is going to describe the way Christians ought to behave and walk with, with one another. He says in verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So he's going to tell us to imitate God. What's that going to look like? 
Well, uh, it's going to look like and walk in love. Verse 2. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Notice how similar those uh, chapter 5 and verse 2 and chapter 5 and verse 25 are. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. He's using that same image and that exact same language to say the way that you treat one another in the church is going to be the same logic, the same uh, picture of the way you treat your spouse. It's a life of self-giving love. And the way you, you see that clearly is by looking to Jesus. And, and so looking at chapter 5 and verse 1, uh, I want to make a couple of points to kind of get us to what Paul has been doing to get us to this passage. Chapter 5 and verse 1, um, you have the word therefore, and then it says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Notice the words, therefore walk, therefore and walk. Um, those are both highlighted in my Bible because they appear quite a few times in the second half of the book of Ephesians. In fact, what Ephesians really chapter 4 through the end of the book are doing are telling us, based on the salvation and the love and the unity that we now have in Christ, being made one new family and one new people in the church, that's supposed to change the way that we live, change the way that we walk. The, the word walk is a, is a symbol for the way you live your daily life. You know, what is your Christian walk? What is your life supposed to be like? And he goes back to chapter 4 and verse 1, where notice Paul says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk. Therefore, walk. Uh, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility, with gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And he's going to talk about walking in a way that honors God through your unity with one another. As you keep reading down, you get to chapter, uh, to, to verse 14, or sorry, verse 17 of chapter 4, when he's going to say, Therefore, this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk. No longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. Like, he's saying, don't walk the way you used to walk or the way that Gentiles walk. He's calling us to walk in a new way. Uh, the way that he's going to call us to walk, chapter 5 and verse 1, is to walk in love. Uh, that's going to be described, if you look up at the very end of chapter 4, I think some of the ways that, that you walk in love are, uh, look at verse, uh, look at verse 25. This is, instead of walking like the Gentiles walk, this is that new way he wants you to walk. Uh, verse 25 says, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth, everyone to his neighbor. Basically, don't lie to each other. Uh, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. If you do have anger there, don't let it bubble over and turn into an action where you're trying to harm or sin against another person. And don't let it linger. Get over it quickly and move on. That's how you walk in love. Um, the longer you stay angry, notice verse 27, do not give the devil an opportunity. The devil can use your anger. So if you, if you have a, a tendency to dwell on anger you got to get past that because anger often leads to sin. Uh, the longer you have it, the more likely you are to sin. And anger just, it just opens up the door to the de for the devil to get involved in your life. So try to, to get over it quickly. Uh, verse 28, 
He who steals must steal no longer. Uh, instead of being the type of person who steals, don't do that. Instead, work. And you know what you'll do if you work? You'll get, you'll get your own uh, wealth or you'll, you'll have your own possessions. And then you can actually use those to share with other people. And so you can do the opposite of stealing. Instead of taking someone else's, you can give to other people. That's how you walk in love. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification. It's going to change the way you speak. And it's not only, I mean, I mean, if you just look at these, these things, it's going to change the way that it, you speak when it comes to being honest. You're going to speak encouraging words rather than harmful or, or detrimental or abusive words. It's going to change the way that you, you, you think and feel when you're walking in love. Instead of letting anger rule, you're going to let go of that. It's going to change the way that you work and the, what you do. Instead of stealing, you're going to work with your hands and try to be a generous person. Um, if you look at verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. By, by ignoring this new way of life, you are going to be grieving the Holy Spirit who got, like, the Holy Spirit is given to transform you into this new way of life. By resisting and rejecting that, and by continuing to steal, or continuing to speak bitterly, or continuing in anger, or continuing to, to lie, and all of these things, then you're grieving the Holy Spirit who is supposed to be uh, transforming you into this new way of life. Notice verse 31. In verse 32, I think these are good descriptions of the new way you're supposed to walk. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Therefore, beloved, be imitators of God. Like, like, if God forgives you, you forgive others. Be an imitator of God. And what is that going to walk like? Look like it's not going to look like walking as the Gentiles walked in their former way of life. Verse two, it's going to be walking in love. I mean, that's the foundation of forgiving other people. That's the foundation of of being kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. It's imitating God and living a life of love. And where is the ultimate picture of where God was kind and forgiving to us? Chapter five and verse two. Just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you, uh, uh, gave himself up for us, uh, an offering, a sacrifice uh, to God as a fragrant aroma. Uh, There's a new way of life, and that life is demonstrated in love. And love is pictured in the cross. That's where you'll see it. Look to Jesus, and that's where you'll find it. To continue this idea of of the way we walk, look at uh, verse 7. He says, therefore, do not be partakers with them, the the children of wrath who uh, live in disobedience. But verse 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. Therefore, walk as children of light. And he's going to describe what that's going to look like. When you get to verse 15 of chapter 5, this is kind of his summary of the whole conversation he's been having there so far. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. So then, verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 18, don't get drunk with wine, uh, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So as he makes his summary statement, he's saying, be careful how you walk. Don't be unwise, don't be foolish, don't be a drunk, but instead... uh, Understand, uh, make the most of your time, understand the will of the Lord, and be filled with the Spirit. And by speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, by giving thanks to God, and by submitting to one another, you can do that very thing. 
Then he moves from there to tell you what submitting to one another looks like for husbands and wives, for fathers and sons, for masters and, and, and slaves. And that, that's how he's taking you through Ephesians. He's, he's taking you on a walk through a transformed life. But notice at key intervals, he'll say, and the reason you treat one another this way is because you're imitating God. You're walking in love. You're looking at the cross. Jesus dying on the cross is our source of salvation, but it's also our model for how to treat other people. Why do you forgive your brother or sister in Christ who wronged you? Because Jesus forgave you and he was willing to go to the cross to do it. So imitate the cross. Bear the cross as you consider what to do. Now that you've been offended by somebody, how are you going to move forward? You look to the cross. When you want your marriage to work, how do you, how do you decide what to do next? Well, think about not necessarily what you want the most, but what would be the best for the other person. And walk in love. Imitate God. Love them just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. Um, you can see how the cross is being used in these ways. If you look, go back to Ephesians chapter 2, you'll see it again. Uh, here he's going to be talking about not necessarily husbands and wives, not necessarily uh, the, the Christian community, uh, although it is the Christian community, but it's, it's a particular aspect of the Christian community about the fact that Jews and Gentiles had been divided for a long time. There was actually a wall that kept them divided. There were certain things that Jews did that Gentiles did not do. Uh, And those are the types of things that become controversial in the New Testament when Gentiles are being welcomed into the one family. Things like circumcision, things like Sabbath observance, things like um, uh, the temple and sacrifice, and and, uh, things like food laws. Like you see these as problems that pop up over and over again, and they are dividing Jews from Gentiles. Uh, circumcision, Jews wouldn't eat with Gentiles because of that issue. And so it was a dividing marker. And what Ephesians chapter 2 is going to say is that one of the things that happened in the cross was that those laws that caused that division were broken down and were taken out of the way. Therefore, you have these two different groups that can become one being reconciled through the blood of the cross. So there are cultural and, uh, and uh, uh, ge- genealogical differences that can create barriers. And the cross not only unites husband and wife, and not only unites brothers and sisters in Christ, it unites different groups into one in Christ. So when you look at verse 14, it says, Now he himself, Christ, is our peace who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself, or so that in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So you've had hostility between these different groups, and the cross is what can unite them together into one new man. Verse 16 And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and to those who were near. You don't have to look very far uh, around you. You don't have to look very hard at the world around you. You don't have to look very far back in history to see that there are often groups that have hostility with one another. And... One of the most beautiful and powerful ways to bring about unity among groups who are hostile is by remembering that the cross of Jesus is not just for one of those groups. That Jesus didn't just die 
for one of those uh, collections of people, but rather Jesus' death is a unifying marker for the whole world. That It doesn't matter whether you are slave or free. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you're barbarian, slithian, uh, free man or slave. Like All of these different groups that you could divide the world into based on nationality, based on the language you speak, based on your race, based on how much money you have. All of these different groups, they begin to fade away into nothing in view of the unity that is found in the cross of Jesus. The blood of Jesus can wipe away the distinctions that have been used as barriers. That's not to say that those distinctions won't exist anymore, but they won't be barriers when we come to understand the cross of Christ. Uh, There are going to be people who still live like Jews and still live like Gentiles. They still are a master and they still are a slave. They still are a male and they still are a female. But those things where society has said men up here, women down here, master up here, slave down here, those distinctions are washed away and they become one in Christ. Jew and Gentile here in Ephesians chapter 2 are being united into one new man. And it's not because they sat around a table and worked out their differences on their own. It's because Jesus Christ is for everybody and they found their unity in him. Uh, Christianity has a message about unity that if If you pay attention, the world would actually benefit greatly from hearing and would be an attractive message for the world to hear. Uh, The world does not like racism. Well, if you're a Christian, you have theological, eternal reasons to think that racism is completely wrong and to try to to go against it. Uh, There are profound biblical reasons to promote the idea of unity among all walks of life and all kinds of people, and that unity is found in the cross of Christ. There is repentance. There is uh, the, the un- uniting with Christ uh, through his blood. But in the cross, you have a recipe for unity. And it's really one that shocked the ancient world through the church. It's one where you did have people joining together at one table who otherwise never would have. And the cross of Christ is the unifying factor that brought that about. And so Paul will often use the cross as the demonstration of God's love for all groups. The cross is the demonstration of God's love for everyone in the church. The cross is the demonstration of God's love between a husband and a wife. And you see how he uses the cross in all of these different ways. Well, one other passage I want to look at, it's not Paul, it's going to be Peter, um, and it's in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. But the cross is going to become the model for how Christians view persecution and even outsiders, non-Christians, who are persecutors and hostile to Christ. Um, so with these other groups, you know, being a Jew or Gentile didn't necessarily make you a persecutor. Um, or being someone who got, had a disagreement with another person in the church doesn't make you a persecutor. But even when it comes to people who are actively trying to persecute and harm the church, the cross becomes the paradigm for how you approach that and for how you uh, live in that. Uh, and 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, he's going to focus on Christ and he's going to make some points about Christ that he will use to say this is how Christians are supposed to respond when you face these similar types of situations. So in verse 21, he says, for you have been called for this very purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 
So the suffering of Christ becomes an example for us to follow. So again, it is a source and a means of our salvation, absolutely. But it's also an example for how we treat other people. He says in verse 22, "...who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return." And while, being, uh, while suffering, he uttered no threats. So you imagine Jesus on the cross. He is not responding in kind, in a like manner to those who are hurling abuse at him. People who are criticizing or condemning or mocking him. Jesus is not responding in that way to them. Instead, you see him saying those strange things like, Father, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. And saying to the criminal on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. You find him quoting the Psalms while on the cross. Um, Psalm 22 and verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Psalm 31 and verse 5, you have Jesus saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Like you have these words of Jesus on the cross, but they are not words of hatred or revenge towards those who are responding to him with hatred and revenge. And, And that's... That's something that I think everyone that I know, including myself, could, that's a tough example to follow. You know, everyone could get better at that because, I mean, again, just get on Facebook and see how good people are at dealing with being insulted. Uh, People tend to respond with it to insult with insult. People tend to respond to like anything with insult, it seems like. Uh, And Christians are called to give that up. Why? Because the cross becomes our example of how to treat other people. The cross becomes our example with how to talk to non-Christians. The cross becomes our example with how to deal even with persecution. If you continue in First Peter, if you look at chapter 3 and verse 8, he's going to use the example of Jesus and then sum up his point by telling us how we are supposed to respond to people. And he's going to use a lot of similar language. In verse 8, he says, To sum up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. Just like Jesus didn't do that on the cross, you don't do that. Don't return evil for evil. Don't return insult for insult. But giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous in doing what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, nor be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks to give an account for the hope that is in you. Do this with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. He concludes by saying, don't respond in like manner to people who are criticizing you. Just prove zealous for good deeds. Continue to do the right thing. Make sure that you always have an answer. Make sure Christ is set apart as Lord. And make sure your behavior is good. That's how you respond to persecution. Do the right thing. Make sure no matter how hard it gets, Christ is still Lord. And make sure you have an answer, a defense for why you're doing this. And if you do those things, that's all you need. You don't need to respond with violence or evil for evil or insult for insult. Why? Well, look at Jesus while dying on the cross. He was doing good. He was loving his enemies. He was uh, not reviling. He was not returning evil. And he could have. I mean, Matthew makes it clear. He could have called he could have called legions of angels to go in there and to destroy all of his enemies in a heartbeat. And that's not an army you want to mess with. He, but that's not the route that he chose. 
He chose the route of self-giving love. And through that, he's brought many people in the world together who otherwise never would have been. So if you find yourself being antagonized because of, a, because of your Christianity, well, Jesus found himself being antagonized, and he responded with love on the cross. If you are wondering how in the world you can uh, be reconciled with different groups, uh, well, the cross of Jesus is the key to reconciling people of different groups. If you find yourself at odds or frustrated with another Christian, well, remember that the cross becomes your recipe for how to overcome and how to forgive, how to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Just as God in Christ also forgave you, walk in love. Be imitators of God. And if you find yourself at odds uh, with a spouse, again, look to the cross, and it becomes your example for how to move forward. The cross is our foundation and is our uh, only hope of forgiveness, but it's also the reason we extend forgiveness. The cross is the hope of our salvation, but it's also how we uh, maintain fellowship with others. The cross is how we are reconciled to God, and it's also how others are reconciled to us. So the cross becomes, yes, our means of salvation, but it also becomes the example that we're called to live in. If there's anyone here tonight who um, maybe you've been looking at your life and, and you haven't been embodying the cross, you haven't been carrying it with you uh, in your relationships, and you would like the help in the prayers of the church, we'd love to be able to help you, pray for you, encourage you in any way that we can. And if there's anyone here who would like to, because of the love given to you on the cross, uh, take advantage of the gift of salvation, having your sins washed away in baptism and living for Jesus from this point forward, please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.